Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode 54, The Guy Who Ate Queens with Joe DiStefano. I'm going to say at the outset, if I sound awful, it's because I feel awful. This is the second time in a month that somehow I've gotten the norovirus, maybe? Listeria, maybe? I don't know. That's real bad, right? I don't think it's E. coli. You can get listeria from soft cheeses. A Google, uh, little Google search told me that, and I eat a lot of soft cheeses. In fact, just yesterday I had a whole brick of like this honey-infused goat cheese. Oh, mama. But yeah, was then, you know, exorcist-style projectile vomiting for a solid four hours. Uh, so yeah, that's where I'm at right now. Thank you to KK for coming over and saving me. Uh, the other thing I have to say at the outset is that there were a number of problems that we encountered in recording this episode. So please bear with it. Sorry for any of the sound problems. Uh, I'll explain a little bit here. So I met Joe at Kanji Village in Flushing, Queens. The restaurant was pretty loud, as restaurants can be, and so it wasn't a good environment to record the episode. So after we ate, we left and we went to a hotel that was right nearby. They have a lounge area and, you know, bought some coffee to kind of make it seem legitimate, like we were there for a reason. Um, they had music playing. Uh, I remember that that Beach House song was playing, the da 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 What is that song? I can't sing. You know, da-da-da-da. Hold on. I'm searching. Space Song. Space Song by Beach House. That was playing. And then there was a guy right behind us with a laptop and no headphones. And like he was playing some old school uh, Frank Sinatra, Diana Ross. It's actually kind of nice. But there was a lot going on. And so it was really hard to concentrate. So we were kind of struggling through that for about nine minutes. And then we got kicked out because we were not real patrons of the hotel. We weren't staying there and they didn't want us recording. So had to leave there. We were in this like alleyway mall type of thing right there in Flushing. And it was 35 degrees in New York in April. Yeah, no big deal. I don't know. So it was freezing and uh, we're right by LaGuardia right there. So pretty much every five minutes, a plane was landing. <sighs> so sorry, Joe and sorry, listeners, but the, the process for recording this one was kind of disastrous. I still want to put it out because I think that uh, he's a fascinating guy and there's a lot of good information in here. Um, but I'll say one more time, sorry, folks, and thank you for dealing with uh, any of the sound issues that you might hear. All right, so who is Joe? Joe is an old school New York City, Queens, food writer, blogger, critic. He's got an insane knowledge of like just the best Boston Queens in, in New York City. He's the real deal. Like he's a like an old school New York soul. Been doing it before social media, before selfies, before food pics and all that stuff. No frills, I think they say, right? No fluff. Um, I respect the Queens love too. Like it's weird. Queens in like the collective conscious of cool, it doesn't get as much love as Brooklyn does. I don't know why. Like I follow a lot of um, you know travel bloggers and folks like that. And when they, when they pass through Brooklyn, like their go-to shot is that shot between the buildings down in Brooklyn Heights of the bridge. Yeah, it looks cool, but there's nothing over there. What are you going to do over there? There's nothing there. So yeah, for you folks, expand out a little bit. Uh, Queens, although I live in Brooklyn, I think has the best food. 
like at least the most densely packed uh, variety of choices in in small areas from like the the Elmhurst no no like Jackson Heights to to Elmhurst to Flushing has so much good food from Southeast Asia um, you know Central Asia South Asia India um, awesome stuff and and Joe knows everything uh, he knows the good the bad the ugly so he's got an amazing blog it's called Chopsticks and Marrow where he's got so much information for you to check out for free. You can go on these awesome food tours that he gives. You can even create your own food tour just by following the information that he puts on the on the blog. So check that out. There's a link for it in the show notes for this episode. I lived for a year in Queens. I lived in Sunnyside. I was just broke and hungry and was just kind of starting a real adult job, but didn't even like have enough money to pay for my first month's rent. So my buddy, Tim, if you go back a ways, I don't remember what episode, but Tim Barish, um, I moved in with him in this pretty rundown apartment. Uh, I won't say exactly where it was, but it was around where Queens Boulevard meets like 39th street, 39th place, 40th street. We had mice, we had roaches, and then eventually we had bed bugs. So a little uh, Queen's trifecta for you. But uh, we lived real cheap, and we ate real well. So right around that corner somewhere was this place, the Tofu Noodle Shop. They do uh, like those Korean, uh, I guess they're clay pots, right? And they're sizzling, and you get tofu, and you could get uh, beef or seafood, and you drop the egg in, and you just pour down the OBs. Man, that place is the best. And the absolute, man, the absolute best was, I think around like, maybe like 10 o'clock at night, somewhere around 40th, 41st, right by the train on Queens Boulevard, there was this torta truck that would come for the late night, you know, beer drinkers and stuff like that. And that, that torta is the best torta I've ever had. I don't know if it's still there. If you're listening and, and you frequent that area, let me know if it is. But I would get like the triple, the the pork, chicken, and beef. Uh, amazing at 2 a.m. Like nothing better when you're a 21-year-old, you know, enjoying the bars around there, coming home, and it sops up all that liquor in your stomach, liquor, liquid in your stomach. I, I don't, I live in South Brooklyn, so we, we've got some good food. We, we don't have trucks like that. We've got, we've got a real good halal truck. I'm sure if you're from around this area, you know the 5th Fifth, uh, Fifth Avenue, 86th Street, the one by Pizza Wagon. That halal truck is, that's a banging halal truck. But I don't know, if you get that at 2 a.m., sometimes you wake up at like 4 and you think you're having a heart attack and you're dried out from all the salt. But it's good. It's real good. Um, so yeah, I don't know what I'm saying. Check out the blog. Um, sign up for a food tour. Check out Tofu Noodle Shop. Uh, I, I'm quite a ways from Flushing. Down here, like it, it, you could get to, to Philly faster than you could get to Flushing, but I need to start hanging out there some more. The, um, what do they call it? The Queen's Night Market starting soon. The World's Fair, which we talk about on this podcast, that is at the end of April. I think it's the 28th and 29th, but I'll have links for all that stuff. And uh, finally, Joe, uh, he wrote a book. It's part of a series of books about regional places and the things that you can check out. It's called 111 Places in Queens That You Must Not Miss. It's 
it's great. Maybe I'll read, maybe, you know, he has a much more eloquent and professionally written bio in this book. So maybe I'll read that in a second, but, uh, it's not just food in the book. It's all sorts of things you can check out in Queens from, you know, hip hop murals to museums to bridges. And then of course, really good food. So, uh, I am going to have a giveaway as I do with most authors, uh, through, through Instagram. So go to my Instagram account, uh, the voice, I can talk. It's, uh, at the voyages of Tim V. What I'll do is because I know everyone won't be listening to this right away. Although millions of you do listen the day that these come out. So shout out to the millions of fans out there. Um, I'll give it like, like two weeks before I end the, uh, giveaway. So I'll be giving away a number of his books. One of these will be signed to a young Voyager and, um, I'll, I'll, I'll mix the signed one in with, with the other ones. So go to my Instagram account. It's usually something real simple. Like I just want you to comment or, or tell me why you want the book and, uh, I'll pick some people randomly from there. Uh, you can also go to the blog and get it. I think it's like $15 ish or maybe a little bit less on Amazon. If you want to go that route. Um, I think probably though, if you buy it directly from Joe, he gets more money in his pocket. Uh, so here's a very concise, uh, about the author from 111 places in Queens that you must not miss. Queens based food writer, culinary tour guide and champion of Queens. Joe DiStefano has been exploring the borough's diverse global cuisines and cultures for many years. An intrepid eater, Joe is widely recognized by such culinary luminaries as Andrew Zimmern as a go-to source on the borough's rich tapestry of cuisines and cultures, from Michelin-starred temples of gastronomy to Thai and Hindu temples where food is served. He is the founder and publisher of the queen-centric food blog Chopsticks and Marrow, and a co-founder of New York Epicurean Events in Queen's Diner Club, Queen's Dinner Club. His work has appeared in the New York Times, Gourmet, Food Republic, and Serious Eats. His clients include Starbucks, The Boys Club of New York, Hormel, The Food Group, and Next Restaurant. That's something we didn't talk about in the podcast was that he did a food tour for some students, some, I think, middle school age students. And I think that was through The Boys Club. And he was able to expose them to, to some new stuff. They had... Um, uh, Chinese rice cakes. They had uh, Mexican fried crickets. So it's pretty cool for some kids from the city to get to uh, try some stuff that they never would have tried on their own and get uh, open to some new experiences. So uh, kudos to you, Joe, for doing that. All right, maybe, man, maybe I should do that more often, like is get these professional bios. I don't know. I like these intros though. Anyway, um, is that what I have to talk to you about Actually, all right, let me say one more New York thing before I shut up and get, get on to this episode. So we were in Flushing. I'm, uh, I'm not a Mets fan. I'm a Yankees fan, born and raised, so I'm not a bandwagoner. Um, in fact, go back to episode 20, please, and listen to my baseball story. I feel like that episode doesn't get a lot of love, and uh, I don't know. That's actually one of my favorites. It's real short, but it's a story about a time I caught a home run and tried to throw it back and threw it into big dog's face and just, just go listen. Episode 20. Uh, but the Yankees men with opening series against the Rays, no, first the Blue Jays and the Rays and then the Orioles, uh, three teams that will most likely end up under 500 and the Yankees broke even with a five and five 
Stanton with 10,000 strikeouts. He's going to break Judge's strikeout record from last year. What is going on? Like, I have faith, but ugh. this is what I think. I think Aaron Boone should go. And hear, hear me out. I think we need to hire, this is not a joke. I think we need to hire A-Rod. Listen, listen. Young players always liked him, right? Especially Spanish-speaking players because he could speak Spanish to them. He was a good mentor. He was a great player. Come on, like you have to respect that. I know the guy's kind of like the butt of a lot of jokes, but he loves the game. He's really knowledgeable. He's confident. Come on, he's, he's dating J-Lo, so like, enough said. Like, he, he's not, like, mousy like Boone. He's, he's jovial and fun. And everyone on the team's going to hit 60 home runs. And you're going to turn the other way, and you're not going to ask any questions. So, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not a manager. I'm not a scout. I'm just a guy that watches, but that's what I would do. So, Steinbrenner's Hal, eh, consider A-Rod. I would. And go listen to my episode 20. All right, that's it. No, I'll mention Patreon real quick. Patreon, if you want to support this podcast, you can do so through Patreon. My page is patreon.com slash the voyages of Tim Vetter. Patreon is essentially a crowdfunding apparatus that helps people who create some type of an art. I do not make any money off of this podcast. And so there are production fees, there's artwork fees, and also there's a whole lot of traveling. I'm getting real close to talking about the, the extensive travel that's coming up and you know, all of that money is going to go straight into the podcast and I want to put out more episodes and I want to put out more episodes on the road. So, uh, that will help do that. If you can afford to do so, check out patreon.com slash the voyages of Tim Vetter. If you can't, I appreciate you just the same. Love everybody that listens to this. All right, folks, I hope you like this episode with Joe DiStefano. This is The Voyages of Tim Vetter, episode 54, The Guy Who Ate Queens. First of all, thank you for doing this. Thank you for showing me Kanji Village. My pleasure. Happy to do it, Tim. Yeah. So I'm going to link everyone that we talk about, and I guess a lot of the places that we talk about, I'm going to link to in the show notes. Uh, but there's a gentleman by the name of Greg that I met at Warung Salasa. That's Dewi, who I had on here two episodes ago. And he told me, you are the guy to talk to about all things Queens. And it seems that way so far. Well, I, I did literally just write the book on Queens. Let's, let's set the character within the setting. So we were chatting about some of this just now when we were eating, sure. but mm -hmm. um, you were born in Queens. Yeah, I was born in... Uh, uh, I was born in Kew Gardens. You were born in Kew Gardens. Yeah, grew up on Long Island. And then relocated when? Uh, well, I... Uh, after a brief stint in uh, Brooklyn, right out of college in 1992, and oh. then Staten Island, I moved to Queens in 1998. Okay. When you came back to Queens, because 
New York goes through these transformations. Mm-hmm. Like neighborhoods go through transformations. Absolutely. What was the what was the neighborhood like in terms of like the demographic makeup, the ethnic makeup, the national makeup of the people living in Kew Gardens at the time? Uh, well, I, I can't really speak to Kew Gardens. Can we talk about Jackson Heights instead? Yeah, yeah, yeah. my mistake. Yeah. Oh, okay, so yeah, so I went, when I moved to Queens, I lived in Woodside, and what I would do. Um, what I would do every night was, uh, so I lived at 52nd Street and Woodside Avenue, and every evening I would walk from 74th Street, Jackson Heights, to 52nd Street, and I would explore a different restaurant, different culture, or by extension, different culture through the restaurants. And um, <clears throat> I, uh, what... So one thing that was very different was, uh, so Jackson Heights itself, right around 74th Street, was more or less all Indian. Mm. There were no, no Tibetan people, no Nepalese people, no Bhutanese people, and that's not the case now. Now, now there are so many people from the Himalayan diaspora that I call the neighborhood Himalayan Heights. Yeah. And, you know, so I suppose the... Uh, Woodside has always been very, um, very Irish, mm. but r- really, so you know, you and I were talking about Elmhurst a little while ago. That yeah. you know, Elmhurst, Queens. You know, we're here in downtown Flushing, which is the uh, not only the the fourth largest uh, uh, urban center in the United States, or you might want to check that, but that you know, not not only is downtown Flushing, uh, you know, it's a great Chinatown, big hustle, bustling hive. Uh, so Elmhurst, the second smaller Chinatown, in the in the late '90s, it really just sort of followed Manhattan's Chinatown. So Cantonese places, even a Korean Chinese place, which is now no longer there, but. In the past 10 years, it's become the best place in New York City for Indonesian and regional Thai cuisine. I only eat Thai food pretty much anywhere else. Yeah. I'm, I'm lucky to be only three subway stops away. I've, like, unfortunately, and I guess maybe fortunately, just now really started visiting that area. Mm-hmm. Um, I, do you know Andre? Who's that? So he's always going to... He does a lot of stuff with the Indonesian community in Queens in the city. He lives in Elmhurst, and he's frequently uh, at Indojava on Tuesday nights. But I had him on here a couple episodes ago. Is he Indonesian or no? Yeah, he is. Um, and I, he I took me to 86 Taste Okay, in I love 86 yeah, Taste. So, yeah. so, so, so Asian Taste 86. That's which, it, right. Which... You know, it's one of these places that when it opened, it had a a very generic sounding name, and they even like they were afraid to say that we're Indonesians from. If I remember correctly, I think they're from Surabaya. Okay. But um, when they opened, I think they may have even had teriyaki on the menu. I think that's gone now. Yeah. So I read that in review. <laughs> in reviews, yeah. Yeah. Because that's like the American palette for what they think Asian food should be. I, I guess, yeah. yeah. That's interesting. 
So you have a, a fantastic blog that's called Chopsticks and Marrow. Um, we're going to get into the book as well. Sure. But why food? What, what was, like, I guess, the early inclination towards food as a topic and career choice? I blame my father for taking me to Manhattan's Chinatown from yeah. a very young age. Okay. Uh, n- no, so, you know, there, there, there was always exploration of uh, different foods in, um, in my household. Uh, you know, my, my mother and father would try and make their own Chinese food. My father really? would make his own, uh, quote-unquote, chow fun by taking wonton wrappers and cutting them up. And you can make a serviceable noodle from a wonton wrapper. Um, and, uh, you know, my mother would try and mimic Wohop's, uh sweet and sour pork to great effect. But, you know, really what... What set it off for me was moving to Queens. Mm. And I guess shortly after moving to Queens, I discovered the Chowhound uh, food message board, and, you know, that gave me a place to uh, either, you know, first it started, oh, let me read so-and-so's tips. And they were saying, oh, I have a tip. I have a discovery. Let me, let me write about that. And that kind of got me into food writing. Yeah. And this is real... Within this world of, of food writing and food blogging, because everybody nowadays has the ability to put content out, like mm-hmm. it's, it's really prevalent. And I'm not saying that uh, everybody that's doing it is real good. Mm-hmm. But when you started doing it, this is in an era when... Um, it was a bit few and far between, right? Like You didn't quite yet have the Bourdain's and the Zimmerman's on TV. No. Right. So, were, were you part of a network of people? Were you just trying to make a name for yourself? Like, how were you getting started with, or maybe a better question is, like, why were people listening to you? Um... Well, I, I mean, first it started out on Chowhound, and then I started writing for Gothamist. Oh, really? And yeah, and yeah. S- and Serious Eats, and you know, I I think I just had a uh, a, a good grounding and an ability to uh, un- uncover things that other people weren't mm-hmm. weren't finding necessarily. Uh, you know, either because they weren't in Queens or they just simply didn't know where to look. So at that time, were, were you going to places that were primarily servicing food for the people from those areas? So let's say, like, let's say it was Indonesian. Were most of the patrons of those places Indonesians? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so, so just to, to bring it back what it was, to what it was like then... Um, so Sri Papai, which is uh, sort of a, a multi-storefront Thai juggernaut of a restaurant now, was a space uh, almost no bigger than where we're sitting now wow. with fluorescent lighting, one room, and a menu that was, um, you know, there was a Thai menu and then there was a picture menu. And it was a loose leaf binder with photos. 
Jackson Diner, which now has branches in Manhattan, was literally a diner. You know, like a frumpy diner. Um, so, yeah. Abs- absolutely, these were places uh, frequented by primarily people of this specific culture. And, and to some degree, that's still true. Yeah. Were, were you looked at with suspicion, though, or...? I, abso- absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and there were places that um, I, for instance, I was dating a Korean woman and I, I went into a Korean restaurant and a uh, little kind of tiny place. I didn't know what was up. And the, the, uh, how are we doing? The, uh, I asked for takeout menu, and the, the, I don't know, 60-year-old lady said, no, this place is only for Koreans. And I said, well, can I have the really? menu? You know, the menu is in Korean. She said, I give to my friend. She said, no. And I said, okay. And I left. Really? You know, and that never happens anymore. What, what, so this is like early 2000s? Yeah, maybe 1999, something like that. Wow. Yeah, it was crazy. Um, so... It was absolutely crazy. So you've seen the neighborhood, and, and I'm, I'm kind of like broadly, obviously Queens is, is a bunch of neighborhoods, but uh, we're, we're like northeast Queens, if you consider like Jackson Heights through Flushing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, this area in particular seems to me, and, and maybe, maybe, you would, uh, maybe you would agree, but seems to me like to have the most... Um, diversity and the, like, the most the best places to eat I can put that quite simply for, for what I've had in Queens and I'm wondering just like if you have any explanation for why or, or how it came to be that like these three neighborhoods maybe attracted so many people from Southeast Asia and like South Asia I, I, I don't know, but I, I, I do know that, you know, it, it doesn't start with restaurants. It starts with people coming over. Yeah. And they, maybe they have other businesses, you know, um, and then they realize, hey, there's enough people here. Let me try and open a restaurant. Um, so for instance, there's a fellow, um, try to remember his name. There's a fellow named, uh, Moonabon who's, uh, uh, friends with Andy Ricker and, um, Moo, Moo is a, uh, Moo started out owning laundromats and mm. now he has investments in many of the Thai restaurants in Elmhurst and in New York City. Wow. Yeah, it's weird. Um, I think that, look, we mentioned Bourdain and Zimmer, and I want to get to that in a little say, bit. Say, say that again, I'm sorry. Yeah, so we, we mentioned Bourdain and Zimmer, which yep. I want to get to in a little bit, because mm-hmm. you are like a fixer of sorts. But it, to me, at least, it seems like with shows like that came mm-hmm. a greater appreciation for different types of cultures and different types of foods. And nowadays, it's almost like cool and chic to have like an expanded p- 
palate and to be able to cite different types of foods that you've had. Right. Yeah. Right. But what, like, what is your take on that? I mean, so all, all these people now who put out content, right? Like you, you can go on Instagram or you can go on blogs and there's tons of people who call themselves and that, that's okay. Those folks, um, there's tons of people who call themselves food bloggers or content creators and mm-hmm. things like that, mm-hmm. but it's not all good. No. So <laughs> I, I mean, so I, I don't want to ding other food bloggers, but let's just talk about Instagram. Sure. You know, so there's, there's a whole bunch of like, Instagram food that, yeah. that that's out there, and you know, and, and I mean like things of a certain type. You know, the crazy shake with the wedge of cheesecake in it. Yeah, yeah. The uh, noodle lifting. You know, I know what goes does good on Instagram: pizza, noodle lifting, uh, things being thrown up in the air, things that uh, look like they were plated just for inter- Instagram. And I appreciate that. But I don't really, I don't think of it as good content. I mean, it, it, it achieves its goal in terms of getting traffic. But what I look for is people like, uh, accounts like uh, uh, food, and, food and Footprints, uh, which is Greg's account. Yeah. Uh, Dan Bukit, who does a lot of great Indonesian content. Uh, Gustasian, which the uh, friend of mine uh, who does all sorts of stuff, and yeah, I met her too with Greg. And, yeah. and I'll look to their content and say, "Oh wow, uh, I should go check this place out." And so, in a way, that spirit of exploration of Chowhounders carried on by certain people, but Instagram really it. Um, It tilts the balance towards stuff that's like, hey, look at this. This is so amazing. Right. Wow, weird. Yeah. Oh, the noodles are levitating or they're turning blue or you know what I'm saying. Yeah. It's funny, too, because when I when I first started traveling, mm-hmm. I did the whole like, oh, what's the, what's the thing that seems so like wacky and bizarre that is eaten in this place? And let me go seek out that well, you thing. Know, no, no, you know, nobody talks about it, but right. but I think when Zimmern started out, he skewed much more toward that oh, yeah. and less toward cultural appreciation. And now it's a, a healthy sort of balance yeah. of both. Yeah. Like and, was, and, and I'm sure to some extent he had to find his voice. Is You know, when, when I started out writing, um, in terms of people exploring, you know, there was Robert Seedsmer for The Voice and... People like, I think Calvin Trillin wrote about Sitsuma, and he said, oh, look, my man Sitsuma found this, and he would, like, send him tips and whatever. And so what I'm saying here, Tim, is that when, when, I, when I started out, it said, um, people used to say, wow, you write a lot like Sitsuma. And that's just what I knew, uh-huh. you know. I mean, maybe this is a silly analogy, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're gonna have some some background tunes in the in the podcast episode, but that's okay. Um, that's, hey, groovy. Yeah, <laughs> actually, I kind of like what he's been playing. Um, the it might sound like a silly analogy, but um, I've used this as a reference point before. But when I was in my teen years and early twenties, I was always going to to punk shows. Sure. And 
I got in just at a time when like message boards were just starting and things like that. So they were still paper zines and there was still like a level of effort that you needed to go through to go get a record, right? Like there was no, like there's no Amazon or something like that. Like mm-hmm. you would go to shows and there would be distros set up at shows. And mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. if they didn't have the record you want, you could like send away for a catalog or a compilation or something like that. And it, it almost feels like you got in at that early internet, internet age too, where it was a little more grassroots, whereas now it's a little more mass produced, if that makes sense. Yeah, I would say you're right. Yeah. I mean, and actually, you know, I guess before he wrote for the Village Voice, Robert Sitsuma, um had a subscription-only newsletter called Down the Hatch. Really? Yeah, and and I met him because I, you know, I, I reached out to him, and you know, because his reviews would say something like. Uh, me and my crack team of eaters, or I brought a pinch eater because this was a big meal, you know, and he would talk about people who he was dining with, and I sent him an email. I said, uh, hey, how do I, how do I eat with you? And he was like, oh, yeah, why, why don't you meet me at this Chinese restaurant? And so uh, we sort of became friends, and, uh, you know, we're more or less colleagues now that he's with Eater. And I said, every now and then I run into him. I ran into him uh, leading a tour of... Uh, this, this neighborhood uh, a couple of months ago. We might be getting kicked out here, folks. Oh, yeah, we're see about him? to get kicked out. We'll see what happens. We just got kicked out. We got kicked out. They said, you are too cool to be in the... Was it the Hyatt, the Hyatt lobby? The uh, Is that where we... Yeah. I think so. Yeah, we weren't uh, staying at the hotel, but we were using their space, so we no, got kicked out. But, but we're here in one Fulton Square because we were too square to <laughs> be in the... Anyway. I don't remember where we were, but let's kind of go back into your chronology. So, you, sure. so you're writing for various publications. At what point did you get noticed? So you were a fixer of sorts for Zimmer. Well, um, I am trying to remember when the Queen's episode of Bizarre Foods happened, but but es- essentially here's here's how I met Andrew Zimmern. So um, the folks from Shen Famous Foods put out a call and they, you know, they put out something on social media and they said, uh, hey, Andrew Zimmern is going to be shooting at our Chinatown store. Uh, come down if you want. And I was like, oh, oh I want to meet Andrew Zimmern. I love Andrew Zimmern. So I, I went and I hung out and um, they needed people to be on camera, and I ordered noodles, I believe, when Andrew was making them. Really? And I had a brief on-camera exchange with him, and I think oh, yeah. he, he says something like, uh, hey, this, this man knows what he's talking about. And then after that, we developed a little bit of a relationship on Twitter, and I kept saying, uh, hey, man, uh, when are you coming to Queens? And he emailed back and forth. And uh, eventually he said, yeah, I'm, I'm coming to Queens. I'm going to put you in touch with my people. And he put me in touch with Tremendous Entertainment. And, they, uh, and you're exactly right. I was somewhat of a fixer for the show. So they said, hey, you know, we want these type of places. We want something kind of old school and traditional. So hence we have uh, Monk and Food, uh, the Romanian butcher shop, uh, charcuterie place in Astoria that wound up on the Queen's episode. And, uh, 
and I was lucky enough uh, to be on air with him in uh, Jackson Heights and a couple of other places. So. That's LaGuardia. Um, that, that is LaGuardia, yes. <laughs> yeah, no, but that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, yeah, and he's super cool. Although I, I did find out that he didn't like butter tea while we were doing the... Uh, oh, yeah? Yeah. The Bizarre Food guys couldn't... <laughs> he, he couldn't handle butter tea. You know, they, they wanted some sort of establishing shot of us walking down the street. They were like, go in there and get a tea and uh, walk down the street with Andrew. Yeah. And I was... Uh, so we get the tea, we're drinking it, and it's wintertime. And uh, I said to uh, Andrew... Um, Oh, this is really nice. It's especially good in winter. I like it. And he said, "Nope, Win- no time. No, not for me. Any time. Winter time or summer time. I don't like it." Oh wow. Yeah. So you quickly, or maybe it wasn't quickly. You'll correct me. But you became known as like the Queen's guy, the guy who. There's a term for you. Uh, so that <laughs> moniker, uh, the man who ate queens. Yeah, that's it is something that came from... Uh, Let's try to hold it a little closer. Sorry. Okay. The moniker, uh, the man who ate queens, is something that came from... Um, I left my scarf in there. Yeah? I think so. I'll stop it. It's all right. It's fine. Yeah? Uh, yeah. So uh, th- that, that was something that uh, Daniel Moorer from... Uh, the man who ate queens, the guy who ate queens, whichever it is. I, I can't think today. Sorry. That was something that was bestowed upon me by Daniel Moorer of uh, New York Magazine. So, yeah. At what point did you start doing food tours? I started doing food tours when... Um, Probably in 2005. I think somebody reached out to me from Open House New York, and they're like, Joe, we know you really know downtown Flushing. We want you to do an experience, a food tour around downtown Flushing. And um, so I guess then about 10 years ago... uh, Viable came out. Mm. So one of these channels, these websites that offers various experiences, you know, I don't know, go go shopping with your new gay BFF for the day, go look at graffiti, bungee jumping, you know, look at Angkor Wat, or um, experience crazy Chinese food with someone who thinks about it all the time. Uh, (laughs) So I started giving tours uh, through them. And, all right, so let's say we've got... Uh, a family from Arkansas, right? Uh-huh. And they're like, hey, we're going to go visit New York City for the first time. And we have a weekend. Yep. Save them from the Bubba Gump shrimp experience yep. and point them in the direction that they should go if they have a limited amount of time but want to experience some good food. Uh, in, in Queens or in New York City? Whole thing. Anywhere. The whole thing. Uh, all right, so um, they go to um, – 
They go to so in, instead of Katz's, mm-hmm. which I love, they go to Harry and Ida's on uh, Avenue A, where my buddy Will Horowitz is doing this sort of next level pastrami sandwiches, which are really, really, really lovely. Uh, then um, where can they go? Where can they go in uh, Brooklyn for pizza? They could go to... So now, like, this is a whole nother discussion, right? Are right. you talking just, like, like good pizza and kind of cool, and they go to Roberta's, or do you want, like, old-school pizza? Do you want them well, going down they, to uh, Spumoni? No, well they, well, they could go to Spumoni. That's certainly for old school, but they could go to uh, Spumoni for old school, Totono's for old school... Um, they could go to Dafara's for a mix of artisanal and old school, which is a great place. Where's that? That's on Avenue J in Midwood. It's this place that's this little old man. He's the only guy who touches the pies. He's uh, Dom DeMarco. He's been there forever. And it started out as a normal slice shop, slice shop, and it kind of evolved into this idiosyncratic style, you know, where it's it's a gas oven, but he's using really, really good cheese and really good olive oil, and um, each pie is sort of unique, and uh, some are better than others, and but he still has the touch. Okay. Are they are they coming out here to, to Flushing? They're not coming out. Oh, 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 will they come out here to Flushing? Your Arkansas family. Yeah, of course they are, but I can't divulge any of their stops. They're, they're coming with me. No, so if they were... Oh, that's if right. They, no, so if they were to come to Queens... Um, well, geez, I already said that they could do deli in... Uh, on Avenue A, but if they wanted to do deli in Queens, and they should, they want an old school deli in Queens, they go to my buddy Jay Parker's place, Ben's Best, in Regal Park, which is sort of a uh, a New York City deli preserved in amber, and you know, just great pastrami sandwiches, stuff like that. Um, and if they want to have a neat experience for Mexican food, Go to Tortilla Nixtamal in Corona, mm. kind of uh, not so far from um, not so far from Corona Park and Cities Field and the Unisphere and all that. And in um, so what they do there is they grind; they're actually grinding corn into masa as opposed to using corn flour. Oh wow! And almost nobody is doing that. Yeah. So they started out from a little kind of tortilla factory to a, um, a wholesale operation and restaurant. Wow. So it's a great place. And if the weather ever warms up, they could have dessert at uh, the Lemon Ice King of Corona. <laughs> Actually, let me know if you get too cold because I know it's, uh, it's chilly out here too. Um, so you, you've... And of course, they'd have to go to the two Chinatowns in... Uh, of, Elmhurst and downtown Flushing. Okay. As well as Jackson Heights. Yeah, and I'll also plug 8th Ave, uh, just because that's my hood. 8th Ave. <laughs> He's making a face at me. 8th Ave in Brooklyn, uh, Brooklyn's Chinatown. Uh-huh. I mean, I like it because, well, proximity, but there's yep. also good food. You're going to have to come down there. I'll come down there. Okay. Um, so I don't want to keep alluding to the fact that 
you've been doing this for a while, but you have been doing this for a while and, and you've, you've seen trends, I guess, come and go. Um, you have a strong predilection towards Asian food. And when I was a kid growing up in the suburbs, like my conception of Asian food was um, like quite Americanized Chinese food. And I think Ugly Delicious, I, I keep plugging, talks about this really well, the David Chang show on Netflix. But now to me, like, whereas when I was a kid, I, I didn't really know Thai food, but, but anyone can kind of in any neighborhood now find a Thai place. What do you think is like the next food trend in terms of um, food from a specific region or country? Like what's on the up and up? Well, I, I'll tell you what I would like it to be. Yeah. Um, I'd like it to be Burmese food because I love Burmese food and you don't see a lot of it. No. But, it, you know, if, if you want to think of it, you know, in terms of this kind of progression or analogy, like, um, uh, ketchup is the new salsa. Salsa is the new gochujang. Mm -hmm. Gochujang is the new, you know, so, so have we gone from, uh, American to Mexican to Korean, you know, and if you were to believe uh, my friend Lagaya Michan of the New York Times, you know, she says uh, 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 Filipino fermented shrimp paste is going to be mainstream. Um, I'm not so sure that yeah. fermented shrimp paste is going to be mainstream. <laughs> uh, I, I, I do see that that's coming into the uh, the the forefront, but, but you know, so uh, leaving aside what I think um, should be the next trend. What I'd like to see, um, I, I think it's regional Chinese. Yeah. You know, you, you don't have, you, you know, you look no further than, uh, Shan Famous Foods and, uh, the explosion of, uh, the, the Jan Bing Northern Chinese crepe, uh, in New York City. And there you go. And, and it's funny because people forget that in in the 90s before there before Jan Bing became popular in hawker stands frequented by chinese people and then before you know new york magazine said oh Jan Bing is the new thing and before mr bing launched there was some guy trying to make bing a mass market concept on division street in manhattan's chinatown and it didn't work out because i don't know the stores weren't right but does something like that, do, does that stay in urban centers or, or would that bleed out into like the American heartland? Do you ever see that happening? Well, something that people can relate to will bleed out into the American heartland. A skewer, a sandwich, yeah, things like that. Uh, you know... Korean live octopus, not so much. Right. Then do, does it bother you then when something, uh, I guess for lack of a better term right now because my brain is frozen, uh, but when something kind of gets watered down to fit like the standard American palate and becomes a bit less authentic, like is that a good way to get people to take the first step towards something or 
is that uh, diluting it too much. What's that Ricky and Morty sauce? What's it called? I don't know. <laughs> you don't know this sauce? Was it like Szechuan no. sauce or something? Uh, I know what you're talking about, but I don't know what it's so called. I don't remember the name, but yeah. it's something like Szechuan sauce, and, and, and it tastes. <laughs> nice it has reference. nothing to do with Szechuan food, and there's, yeah. I'm pretty sure it's just a sweet chili sauce. So I, I, I guess what I'm saying here is if it goes too far, then... It, 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 it's not a way to get people to try anything. It's just a way to have people stay within their comfort zone, you know? So, like, when... Um, when when Subway started putting sriracha in things, you know, sriracha, the death <laughs> knell for sriracha sounded loud and clear to me. Uh, yeah, no, that's a... Uh that's a good reference. It's funny. I was talking about this with Dewey, but mm-hmm. I was in Bali last summer, and in the places that are heavily populated or visited by tourists, you go to these warungs, which I'm putting in air quotes, mm-hmm. um, but it's like frozen vegetables, and it's like a real watered-down, no, really? ch- no chilies. Oh, yeah. Like wait, it, so, it, wait, wait. So help me understand. Sure. So, so is, is, this is because Bali is tourist land? Oh, yeah. So, um, uh, you know, our summer um, is Australia's winter. And the proximity of Australia to Bali is just a couple hours by plane. A couple hours by what? By By plane, plane, yeah. By plane. Yeah, yeah, right. There you go, folks. I'm not even going to edit those because it's like every five minutes. But um, so there's so many, you know, young college kids that are there to sit on a beach Mm -hmm. party. And they're giving you a version of the culture that is more palatable and relatable to what you're eating, but is not very Indonesian. And yeah, then well, you, the, the, this is the, 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 the pad thai yeah. thing, but with Indonesian food. Yeah. So the guy who I mentioned uh, or earlier, who's uh, the Thai businessman, and he's a good businessman, but he, he actually wrote a book called I Love Pad Thai which was a guide to, for Indonesian, re- uh, for Thai restaurateurs, like how to navigate opening a restaurant, like make your sign like this, deal with the health department like that, your delivery guy should be like this. And he showed it to me once. And for a minute I wanted to say, you know, well, you're, you're, you're the problem. You had people make this crappy pad Thai, but I don't think that was his intent. I just think that that's what happens. Flavors get rounded out, and and, and, and until there's enough critical mass, so re, so regional Thai food really didn't start to emerge until in Elmhurst until about five years ago. Really? Yeah. Wow. Um. So now, now, so as opposed to having a menu that's like an encyclopedia. Yeah. Now you have a restaurant that's specifically devoted to Thai-style chicken and rice, and they serve, like, three things. Yeah. And that's all they have. Yeah, and that's great. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. It's a good place. Have you been? No, but uh, I I know exactly what you're talking about when the place specializes in the thing. Um, Yeah. That's what I kind of like about going to see Dewey is that, like, that's the thing she's serving that day. Right. That's that's what you're getting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so, like, um, the Koreatown in Manhattan... Very often the menu is like an encyclopedia. You go out to the, the Ktropolis on Northern Boulevard in Bayside, Murray Hill. There's there are barbecue restaurants, but really it's like, hey, you know, we're a barbecue restaurant, but really all we do is pork belly. That's uh-huh. our best thing, and we don't. May, maybe we have other things, but sometimes it's only a pork belly place. Yeah. 
what um what is something that you that you don't like and i'm not talking like mcdonald's or something like that but is is there like uh, i'll give you an example the place that we just ate at has sea cucumber mm-hmm. and when i see a lot of like uh, tv personalities that are in the food world often a lot of them who eat everything are like ah, I, I can't do the sea cucumber is I, there something I, that you can't I, get down with i i saw i saw that episode of ugly delicious Oh yeah, yeah. So David yeah, Chang's one the, of them. The other, the other night, where. Um, but I think also, I think it was either Zimmer or, or Bourdain who yeah. was struggling with it. So, once. so there, there, there is, there is one thing um, that I absolutely cannot stand, and, and it happens to be a Korean thing. And there's a lot of Korean things that uh, are very pungent, salty, funky that I have no problem with whatsoever. But uh, so the the thing I can't stand. Is this a skate? Yes. Okay. It's fermented skate. Have you had it? No. Do you know who Graham Holiday is? No. He wrote Eating Vietnam. He came on here and he he, he told me about that because oh, he really? lived in Korea. Oh, yeah. how interesting. So, yeah, so but I, tell people. So so I was at this Korean restaurant with a bunch of people and it was like a... Um, here in New York? In, in Murray Hill, Queens. Oh, okay. Not far from here. So uh, we were there to try a bunch of dishes and kind of talk the place up and, you know, kind of a... Influencer dinner, if you will, and um, one of our friends was a Korean chef, and she said, oh, they have the fermented skate. I've never had that. We have to try it. <laughs> and there were about nine of us. And so they bring out a, uh, a tray, and it has uh, cold sliced pork belly. Fine. It's got some uh, vegetables, some kimchi, whatever, some salted white Napa cabbage. Great. Garlic, jalapeno. Fine. It has the translucent um, kind of thin slices of skate. uh, Looked fine. Go to pick it up, make a little Psalm sandwich on the the cabbage and everything, and pick it up, put it to my... As soon as you pick it up and put it to your mouth, it smells like a well-used litter box. Stinks to high heaven of ammonia and urine. So you It actually is urine, right? I don't know. Okay. I <laughs> I, I don't want to admit it, maybe. But yeah. so you, and you, you go to eat it and, and I picked it up with my hand and used chopsticks. <laughs> um uh. and so it tastes horrible and it is so much ammonia that it, it almost had a burning sensation on wow. on, on the palate. And uh, so long story short, between nine of us you know, if we ate a quarter cup of it, that was a lot. We didn't finish it, everything. Yeah. Yeah, so I can't stand it. One thing I struggle with, I'm not talking about, I'm sure you, you'll know what I'm saying, but I'm not talking about tripe, but like cow stomach lining, the big, big thick pieces of it that you'll sometimes get in like an Indonesian soup where you can't quite chew all the way through it, so you kind of just have to swallow it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, I, I don't know what you're talking about, okay. but I, but I, but I, but I, well, I, I there are certainly situations like that that I encounter. Yeah. Um, you know, what, one thing that comes to mind, I don't know if you know, omasum is a type of tripe that is kind of like yes. white, bone white and kind of like, uh, papillar stippled, you know, little fronds and it, it's kind of chewy and, uh, I have had an experience where I was like, I had to go go to the restroom and put my fingers down my throat to pull out a piece of it. Like just, you know. <laughs> so 
So, so on the flip side of this, yes. and saying guilty pleasure is kind of silly, but do you have... Or do you have something that you like to eat that might, you know, turn food writers off? Are you hitting the dollar menu at McDonald's late at night? Uh, do those taquito things from 7-Eleven count? Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> You've got a strong uh, foundation yeah. there. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, shit, everybody likes junk food. Yeah, for sure. That's brave, though. <laughs> um, I want to make sure that we talk about two things. So one sure. of them is your book, 111 Places in Queens That You Must Not Miss. Uh, yes. So this kind of fits into uh, a series of sorts, right? Like there are a number of books that talk about uh, regions and the things that you need to see, and you have chosen Queens, obviously. Yeah, well, so... This series existed for quite some time before I came around, and uh, they expanded to the U.S., and my editor contacted me a couple of years ago, and she said, hey, we're, uh, you know, so they have 111 places in Edinburgh that you shouldn't miss because the Brits are so popular, pop, pop, proper, 111 places in Hamburg that you shouldn't miss, and all the U.S. titles are you must not miss. So Chicago, Los Angeles, anyway, my editor contacted me and said, hey, we want to do something about Queens. Um, do you, um, maybe you know someone who wants to do it. Perhaps it could be you. And I said, yeah, it'll be me. So that's sort of how that came about. So I'd imagine that this is years of research and eating put into this book. Yeah. So, you know, ju just so you know, it, 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 it is by no means just a food book. Um, there's a lot of things oh, okay. in, in it. And, and I was encouraged from the initial list to the final manuscript to make it not just a food book. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's one of these things that, you know, there's a lot of cultural places in here. And um, what happens, you know, if you, if you hang out and you eat enough... Uh, Nepali food, eventually you wind up at the Nepali Whoa. monastery in a converted church. That looks if awesome. If you hang out and you, yeah. you know, start to explore Indian culture, eventually you're going to wind up at the, uh, the Ganesh temple in Flushing. And the yeah. same I, thing I goes for there, the, yeah. uh, the Wat Buddha Thai, uh, the Vorn Vanaram. And uh, they're oh, actually having, they're having yeah. their Songkrong festival on... Um, oh, yeah, it's April. April 15th. Yeah. And they're right here in Elmhurst. And so by, right this, in Elmhurst, by yeah. this point, listeners who are listening have heard my intro, right? So um, they'll know that we're, I'm going to be doing a giveaway of sorts of the book also. But yeah, that, that's awesome. Um, and also the night market, and th there's, there's one more thing I want to add note that we got to sure. get running here, but the night market's starting up in a couple weeks. But you are, let me wait for that yeah. Boeing to go by. But you are helping to curate at the World's Fair, F-A-R-E. I, I am. So what is that? So the World's Fair is uh, something uh, dreamed up by my pal uh, Josh Schnepps, and uh, my brain is frozen. I can't think of his name. Okay. Um, we could always add it in later. 
The, the World's Fair is basically a recreation of the um, 1964-65 World's Fair, but uh, yeah. each country is going to be food. So there's going to be food from all over the world, and it's uh, and, and entertainment and uh, some cultural stuff. Uh, it's going to be sumo wrestling, and it's uh, a yeah, two, two, awesome. two-day festival. It's going to be great. It's at City Field? It's at the City Field parking lot. Okay. And that's the last weekend in? The 28th and 29th of April. Cool, cool. And I think that just has like an admission fee. And then do you also pay for food at that? Or do you, does the yes. admission fee? Yes, you do. Okay. Yeah. Um, and like I mentioned, also the Queen's Night Market starts up the 21st, I think. And I think that's like a $5-ish cap on most meals. A- absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I've never been, so I'm super excited. It, it's fun. Um, it does get really crowded. You know, me, I, I, I sort of feel like... Um, my entire life is an international night market, so yeah. I like to say that I don't go, but you know what? I go. Yeah. And and the things I go for there are things I can't get elsewhere, particularly the Burmese food from Burmese Bites. Yeah. Are, are you at a, at a place where, like, you kind of don't like your face being seen because then people know that you'll be writing about them or no? Um, I don't really care. They don't no. necessarily know who I am. Okay. All right. Well, listen. First of all, thank you for braving the cold. Thank you for braving the multiple situations we've had to go through to get this done. Um, Everyone should check out the book, 111 Places in Queens That You Must Not Miss. I'm going to have your Instagram linked. That's uh, great. Thank you. Your blog. And when it is warmer out and there's less distractions, we should do this again, man. Sounds good. Awesome. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks.